This episode of Dear Asian Americans is brought to you by the Quarter Pounder with Cheese from McDonald's. It's QPC time. Did your mouth just water? The QPC is the burger that breaks the norms of etiquette, the burger that napkins were made for, the burger that's saucy, drippy, oozing with flavor, always cooked when you order. So the next time you want a mouth-watering burger, order the QPC from McDonald's. Hey, everybody, it's Jerry here. And before we uh, get to the rest of the episode, and we have a really great episode to share with you today here on 180, uh, I wanted to share a little bit more in-depth information about a message from our friends at the Health and Human Services as it relates to the COVID vaccine and ways to get treated. As you know, uh, we've been partnering with the Health and Human Services and the Weekend to This campaign for the last few weeks and many times throughout the last couple of years to really encourage our community to get vaccinated for COVID and now to seek treatments for COVID because we now know and doctors and the health officials have been had a chance to study COVID a little bit longer uh, to understand how we can both avoid but also treat COVID. And so here's a few thoughts that I wanted to share, you know, courtesy of our friends uh, at the Health and Human Services. And uh, it's simple. If you have early COVID symptoms, get treated, get tested often, Right now, we're seeing an increase and a spike in COVID in major cities. Health departments, uh, including the one where I live in LA County, are recommending that people start to mask indoors again. And so it is really a time to be concerned and to be vigilant about taking care of our own health and the health of those who that we care about. And so uh, early treatment can definitely reduce your symptoms and shorten the time that you are sick. And particularly if you are 50 or older, or if you have a chronic condition, you're definitely at higher risk of severe COVID illness and even death. And so as soon as you have COVID symptoms, talk to a doctor, get tested and and treated right away. There are definite steps that you can take to prevent severe disease. And COVID is treatable with pills and infusions that doctors can prescribe. And so uh, obviously very important, go to your doctor, make sure that they are prescribing medication to you and treatments that will help you either decrease your symptoms or to shorten the time that you are sick. Uh, When these medications are taken within days of the first symptoms, they do really work well to uh, prevent hospitalization and worse, in the worst cases, death. Uh, Even if symptoms are mild, treating COVID early with medicine prescribed by a doctor can make your infections shorter and less severe and help you keep you out of the hospital. This medicine could obviously help even save your life. And the treatments for COVID is really based on how high your risk is for COVID, regardless of how severe your symptoms are. And so definitely uh, extra precaution for people who are over 50 or have certain chronic health conditions or unvaccinated, definitely talk to your doctor and to make sure that you are getting treated as early and as as frequently as you can. And specifically, uh, COVID is treatable with antiviral and monoclonal antibody medications that doctors can prescribe. And so make sure that you are taking the right things. I know there's a lot of information out there and it is uh, perhaps easy to Uh, Listen to folks that you trust or follow online, but really, when it comes to your health and particularly uh, treatments for COVID, go talk to your doctor. We want to thank our friends at HHS uh, for their continued support of the show, and we want to do our part in making sure that uh, as we continue to celebrate our friends and the year that we've had with gatherings small and large with people that we care about, that we are doing our best part to, one, prevent COVID through getting vaccinated, wearing masks and taking other precautions. And if we are in, in case that we do catch COVID, that we are doing our best and um, acting quickly so that we can minimize the implications uh, that we have only not only for ourselves, but for others. And so big thanks to the Department of Health and Human Services and the We Can Do This campaign for your support of Dears and Americans. And now here is our episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dears and Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, here with our producer, Patrick. And we are back to fresh episodes here on episode 180. And, uh, you know, this year has been challenging a lot of different ways. And I think one of the ways that it's been challenging for many of our listeners, or we certainly know of a friend or a family member who has been impacted, is in their profession. Uh, We continue to hear about the ramifications of the economy, inflation, and other layoffs that are happening, particularly in technology. And so, We've been wanting to have this guest on for more than a year. Uh, just schedule-wise, we, we couldn't make it happen, but really glad and, and really grateful to Gorik Eng, uh, the author of The Unspoken Rules, uh, a Harvard MBA grad and a former Harvard College advisor who has now taken his life experiences and professional experiences and 
is now uh, sharing those out through his book, through his speaking engagements and his content. And so uh, whether you are in the market or whether you're in transition or you uh, know of somebody who is graduating, uh, he's got some really, really great advice and uh, just a joy to be able to share this conversation, especially with somebody who is also on a journey of starting their own business, particularly in an unknown part of our world. And so, uh, Patrick, what did you think about Gorick's interview? I thought it was really great. As somebody who's currently in transition uh, from a career standpoint, it was a really poignant and and pertinent conversation for me to be able to listen in on. I liked how he talked about the accumulation of his experiences leading him to take the next step, not necessarily just kind of bouncing around, but like what he's doing with the book and what he's trying to do now from a business perspective really is the sum of all of those different parts. And the thing that actually stuck with me the most was an anecdote that he relayed about one of his friends describing the three fra- the three phases of his life so far, which was him living up to his parents' expectations, then living up to society's expectations, and then the third phase being living up to his own expectations. And that really resonated with me because I feel like I've been viewing my life in three phases currently, and I felt like those different levels of expectations really lined up with how I view my life currently as I try to develop and grow as a professional. So I'm excited for all of the people who are here in our listener base to hear this conversation and see the different ways that Gorik has been doing some of these really cool things to challenge those unspoken rules. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I think it's really wonderful because he has had such a richness of the diversity of experiences of obviously having gone through some of these things himself um, and sharing it and learning from some of the challenges of both professionals and students. And it's just been a really uh, big joy as as we uh, share many times during the conversation, just the mutual respect that we have for each other and the appreciation that we have, uh, especially uh, as as peers, um, Asian American peers um, in the industry of speaking, of content creation, of starting our own businesses that are anchored in sharing the lessons that we want to have learned at certain different points in our lives. And so uh, big thanks to Gorik. And as you listen, um, I, I encourage it a few times, but go check out the book. It is called The Unspoken Rules, or his website is probably the easiest to remember. It's Gorik.com, which is his first name, but it's also could be an encouraging to a friend named Rick. GoRick.com. <laughs> and so uh, without further ado, my conversation with author, professor, and dear friend of the show, Gorik Eng. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Dear Asian Americans, or welcome if it is your first time. Uh, I We've been waiting for this one for a very long time. Our guest today has been a dear friend that we met during the pandemic and has been uh, both publicly supportive of the work that I'm doing and vice versa, but also, uh, more importantly, the conversations that we've been able to have um, offline as two uh, Asian American brothers sort of navigating the transition between the traditional path post-MBA into doing something that not only that we care about, but something that we call our own and putting our names and our ideas out there as the personal brand. Um, Gorik Eng has been truly, truly one of the biggest blessings in my life. And he's been helping so many people just across the board. Um, His first book, the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Unspoken Rules, Secrets to Starting Off Your Career Right. He's been speaking everywhere, uh, sharing the ideas that he has learned through business school experience through coaching students at Harvard and, and so much beyond that. And so, Gorik, uh, finally, welcome to The Asian Americans. <laughs> Jerry, thank you so much for having me. It is definitely a long time coming. Definitely my fault as well. But no, I'm no, glad no. we're finally here. <laughs> People got to know, we've this is our third time, actually, uh, after we've set up time, the last two times what we what's happened is we'll do like the pre-call chat and that gets more fun. And then yep. 30 minutes into it, we're like, oh, crap, we don't have time to record. So what, let's just talk about life and business and work and, and you know, all these wonderful things. And um, I actually think it's, it's, it's a nice time to chat with you now. You know, here we sit at the end of 2022 um, at a time that I think um, the world has brought us to, at least from a career perspective, uh, in a very, very different place than maybe we would have been able to talk about six months ago or even a year ago where the you know, the economic factors are changing. um, And whether we believe that is inflationary or due to, you know, other factors, people are not perhaps feeling as easy or are currently going through some challenges in transitionary periods. And we hear about the big 
news items from the big tech companies because those names are sexy and those obviously you know sell clicks. But there's a lot of people I think right now, whether they are going through a career transition or maybe feeling it is a time for a change from where they are, or students, both undergraduate and graduate students, as they look at what am I going to do when I graduate, um, there's a lot more questions than I think than we would have had uh, six months ago. And I think maybe a year ago, the question would have been, the opportunities are ample, you get to pick, and, and now maybe not. So and, and that's when I think, you know, the, the uh, insights and the knowledge that you're going to share, uh, that you have been sharing through your book and through conversations is more critical, because in those moments, it is my opinion that we rely on the rules that have been taught to us, because we, in, in, in situations where we are more fearful, we go back to the more conservative or the more known options, and we don't take as many risks or we do not explore these unspoken rules. And so let, let's start off with that. How has that been for you? How, what have you seen from the perspective of you know keynote speaker, a facilitator, coach, from a career perspective, working with organizations and students the last maybe, let's call it three to six months in, in that change? Yeah, it's definitely been a tough time out there. Um, I'm thinking back to a survey that I conducted at a large tech company. This was right before I spoke to their entire intern class. And as you'd expect with surveys, you have the stragglers and then you have the early adopters. So the folks who filled out the survey were filling out the survey in the midst of the boom. And when I asked questions like, what are you most anxious about when it comes to your career? Where do you see yourself? You know, all of those questions the predominant theme was, well, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. I'm trying to self-actualize, get up to the top of Maslow's hierarchy, right? And I, I thought to myself, okay, great. Well, fast forward a couple of months and the wave of tech layoffs started rolling in. And that was when the late adopters started filling out the survey. And it was a very different tone. It was the tone of, oh my goodness, I have to write a resume again. I have to go through the job search again. I have to network again. I thought I had just gotten a job. Now I am back thrown out there into the wilderness. And so that sentiment shifted overnight. And it was just about two weeks ago, I did a, another speaking engagement with a nonprofit that serves predominantly first-gen low-income college students. And I asked them the same set of questions. What are you most anxious about when it comes to your future? I said future this time instead of just career because these are... Folks who are a little bit younger, um, maybe not thinking about their careers yet, but they were saying things that I think a lot of us can relate to. They were saying things like <laughs> geopolitics, the recession, housing affordability, whether I'll ever find a job and a career that will pay the bills and will be something that I'll find fulfilling. So when I went through, and I, I think I did some analysis around the most commonly cited word in the open responses to that survey, it was the word uncertainty. Hmm. And, and it just really struck home because as I think about even my own future going into 2023, I mean, that's what I'm most anxious about too, uncertainty. Where is my career going to go next? Is the economy going to be in a state where you know, I can do the bookings that, I can, that, that I've been able to do over the last while? And if I'm doing this as a solopreneur, well, Folks in my, in my life who have W-2s, they're posting, I mean, hardly a day goes by when I don't go on LinkedIn and I see another one of my friends post a layoff announcement. Yeah. Um, one of my dear friends uh, was in this position despite being on maternity leave. And I, could, I can't even begin to imagine how difficult that can be. Um, so yeah, I mean, long story long here, uh, uncertainty, it's, it's crossing all of our lives. And I think it's, you know, um, and, and you've seen the world from the lens of obviously a student, um, you worked in consulting as I have, and, and that's a very high intensity sort of different perspective that I think you learn about the way that other people see the world. And, and then you've also had the pleasure of mentoring students or, or advising students formally um, at Harvard, particularly focused on, you know, students of color and first generation students. And, and so you come from so much knowledge of having experienced these things yourself, but also having heard straight from the students who, from the world's perspective, probably are, are seen as very privileged and what do you have to worry about? But 
you know, it doesn't matter whether you are a student at Harvard or you are somebody trying to figure life out uh, without such credentials that I, I think it's really important to understand some of the things that maybe we were not taught. And, and you speak openly about the fact that because you yourself were a first generation college student, that when you're raised with your family or your parents raised you in, in Toronto, that you didn't have some of these things that you know now. And, and that's why you feel that it is your job and duty to now share because we're trying to level the playing field. And part of that is to bring up the people from the rear and to say, hey, did you know about this stuff? Because I didn't. And, and so tell us about sort of the Eng family transition. Um, I know we're called the Asian Americans and we'll claim you as an Asian American now, but um, <laughs> Asian Canadian with an asterisk. Um, tell us about sort of the, the, the journey to North America. As I think back to the informal education that I got over the dinner table, it was the lesson of just put your head down, do the hard work, and let your hard work speak for itself. Do well in school, get good grades, and life will figure itself out. And there were just moment after moment after moment when I felt that assumption questioned. So I'm thinking about, for example, when it came to college admissions. I went online and I found that my peers who had gone to private schools and prep schools and what have you, have private coaches who were former admissions deans at some of these top schools who are now charging a pretty penny to get you into the school of your choice. And, they, and some of them, I remember, this is a while ago now, but some of them would offer a guarantee and say, we will get you into your top, I think, three choices or your money back or something like that. Hmm. And meanwhile, I was just browsing through Google trying to make sense of all the different pieces of information that I found on these forums. And it wasn't until I met someone who's now a friend who had gone through the college application process, I had met her at a student leadership camp, that I realized that there are a whole host of what I call now unspoken rules to navigating this process. So it's not just about getting good grades. It's also about having a good story. It's not just about clicking share with your high school English teacher and getting them to write a reference letter for you. It's about feeding them some bullet points that they can potentially highlight. It's about sharing your story and having them reinforce your personal brand. It's about, well, nowadays, especially negotiating financial aid packages. There's a lot here mm. that just isn't advertised. And if you don't have someone in your life who's gone through this process before, it's just a series of unknown unknowns. So that was the, the college application process. I, I was lucky and blessed enough to have made it to Harvard as a first-generation low-income college student. And when I got there, it, it, it was just an eye-opening experience because it was the first time that I was in such a high concentration of people who could call their parents and siblings doctors, lawyers, executives, senators. And I just noticed that they navigated these spaces in a totally different way. Um, I, I often share the story of me walking home from the library one night and heading off to bed when all of a sudden I came across a number of my classmates who were in that same class as me walking in the other direction. I was wearing jeans and a hoodie. They were decked out in suits and ties. Turns out that they were off to an invite-only recruiting event that was put on by an employer that had come on a campus and had already pre-selected the people that they want to shortlist. I was in class the next day, taking notes, only to notice that those same peers were nowhere to be seen. Turns out they had taken flights to New York City for their quote-unquote super day. It's their final round interview. The application hadn't even closed, and already there were people who were at the final rounds of interviews. So I had gotten quote-unquote rejected, before I even thought the process had opened. And so I looked left, looked right, emulated the tactics of some of these peers and classmates of mine, and ended up getting some of the jobs that these so-called insiders had gotten, jobs at, in investment banking and management consulting. And just like my experience of getting into college, I thought, oh, hey, I got in. <laughs> these unspoken rules, whatever they are, are totally behind me only to realize that these unspoken rules had only just begun. 
or that there were a whole different set of unspoken rules. So now I'm flashing back to my first week in corporate America when I was still setting up my email account and my laptop. I was sitting beside a coworker, also a dear friend now, who had sat next to me. And we were both setting up and all of a sudden, one of the senior partners at the firm walks by, knocks on the door and says, hi, and we'll just call her Chelsea for, for the sake of keeping her anonymous. But the senior partner said, hey, are, are, are you Chelsea? Chelsea responds with, yes, how can I help you? And then the senior partner says, oh, let's get lunch sometime. At which point I thought, oh my goodness, this is amazing. So the higher-ups are so caring that they're going to take time out of their busy schedules to grab lunch with folks like us. That's amazing. Well, I mean, I see you chuckling here. It, it's not an open invitation. It was because Chelsea had gotten referred to the company and before her first day had already built relationships with some of the higher-ups so that they knew that she was on her way. Fast forward several weeks, and she had gotten pulled into projects that weren't publicly advertised. And so again, I, I just started seeing this divergence between those who know what they don't know, or well, know how to navigate these spaces, and those who stumble along, wonder why, and do so through trial and error. I mean, I have felt that, um, you know, I, I think um, maybe unrelated uh, in business <laughs> school, it was often when you show up to class in a suit, everybody's looking at you like, wait a minute, where are you going? What, what, <laughs> it's what, what am I not always that kid. to, right? Yep. And, and yeah, when your friend shows up, he's like, wait a minute. And then you start looking through emails like, did I miss something? <laughs> and, and like, that's a completely different- get rejected? Yeah, like there, there's a whole different um, conversation on sort of like, I don't know, just keeping calm and, you know, doing your, 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 your best or, you know, staying on your track. But, you know, you, you talked about sort of the things that we were taught by our parents. And we, we say often on this show, and every time I talk to other audiences, like, it's critically important to mention that, like, it wasn't their fault, right? Because mm -hmm. I think the, there's a lot of things in play. And I do think that the other thing that, uh, one thing that we don't really mention is that behavior was often rewarded back in our home countries or in a different generation because of sort of the cultural and societal norms that continue to exist, right? And so if you show loyalty to an organization, the loyalty is often more reciprocated than in current the current climate of, you know, American or Western capitalism, right? So there's sort of this notion of it worked for them. And so they wanted nothing but the best for us. So they gave us the best advice that they thought could work for us in this situation. Little did they know, or maybe they did, and they just operated from a position of unknown unknowns, as you share, is that we moved continents and also generations and also systems. And so our parents had really no idea how to make us successful. And keep in mind, for all the young folks, our parents raised us, at least Gork and my parents, with uh, no internet, with no WeChat or Kakao chat rooms, with, <laughs> with far less even community information. And so the, the, the water cooler talk amongst the parents was, I don't know, at business, at church, at whatever. And so it was really within a very, very finite information. And, and so the fear of missing out for your kid was far greater because of the lack of information. And so I, I think it's important to mention that because I think we, we often compare these two things of like, well, I, why did my parents do more, right? Why, why wasn't I, you know, uh, offered these resources? And it's like, dude, they were so busy trying to transition to a new country to keep us fed and happy and educated. And the other flip side of that, and I know you don't have kids yet. I got two. And I'm trying to think of how much of the privilege that I sort of resented growing up with because I have that power now because I've done, you know, what was expected of me and beyond to build the right relationships and have the right people in my phone so that do I perpetuate that? Like it's such, such a, weird thing about privilege and, and access that I think it, it is a delicate conversation. But I do think that it starts with what you're doing, which is to collect the information and then tell the other people who still don't have parents and friends and family and who don't come from areas where, like you said, you don't have friend's dad or dad's friend or mom's friend or friend's mom that are <laughs> right. people that can like change your life for you or, or open doors at least. Um, at what point did you decide that this was going to be your 
chosen path because you you did uh, you know dabble in banking, you did go into consulting, which are traditional path. Then you went back to Harvard to get your MBA, and you know uh, what's expected of you when you take that path is probably something a little bit more corporate driven or you know, going even deeper, doubling down into a fast track to a partnership or a corner office somewhere. And now when people meet you, they may not know all that. And they're like, hey, here's a guy who's written a book about career advice. Was there a focal point or a singular point that was crystal clear? Or was it a series of events that led you to wanting to make this your primary calling? Well, I'll say that I'm still trying to figure it out. So <laughs> the the imposter syndrome does not end. The analysis paralysis continues. It's a daily struggle. And, and so I would say that it was an accumulation of experiences that led to me wanting to, frankly, just take the next step. Um, I'm thinking back to when I was in corporate America, this started off not as a some big grand plan to write a book. It started off with just rants after work. I was chatting with my friends and we were just ranting to each other about, hey, is life meant to be this hard? And one conversation, rant session, led to another, led to another, led to another. And I started taking notes. It was in napkin notes, notebook notes, Google Docs, whatever, what have you. And it wasn't until in business school that while I was in the business school bubble, right? And in business school at the time, folks wanted to become product managers, management consultants, private equity associates, whatever. Um, I was in the startup crew. And so the language that we spoke all the time was, well, what app, what platform, what, what tool, what gizmo are you coding up? Well, I'm, I'm not coming from a technical background, but I was very much in that circle where I was like, okay, how can I turn this into a platform? That was the, that was the, the, the daydream and the night dream while I was in business school. And I was testing out different ideas while I was there as well. But it wasn't until I met a professor who I was actually trying to sell kind of an app to and get him to introduce me to his connections that he encouraged me to write a book. And that led to me doing a couple of things simultaneously. So I was in my last semester of business school. I was going to school still. I was testing out different startup ideas. And on nights and weekends, I started writing the manuscript hmm. for what was at the time an independent project. So I actually went back to this professor and I said, hey, I'd love to have you as a mentor to me. Could I sign up to work on an independent project with you where I can get selfishly some course credit? We get to work on this project together and we can give this a shot. And fast forward, May of 2018, uh, I defied his expectations. <laughs> so he had said yes, expecting me to give up. I handed to him, was it 400 pages with a big bulldog clip? I walked over to his office and he said, how did you do this? Pharmaceuticals? And then I'm like, no, professor. I just <laughs> drank some green tea, <laughs> went to the gym and tried to stay motivated. That was the first draft. And then the more I thought about the leg of the relay race that I wanted to run, the more I started reflecting upon, well, what if I could run as best I can the leg of the relay race where I demystify distill, and democratize. And it came out in the form of this book. And I'm still trying to figure it out. But so far, it's been a fun ride where I've gotten a chance to meet folks like you and get in front of audiences and transition over to becoming a faculty member as well at the University of California, Berkeley, where I've got a chance now to codify some of this knowledge into a course on career navigation. So it's just begun, but I'm starting to see the snowball effect occur. And it's really exciting because uh, well, one of the classes, well, one of the, well, one of the frameworks that I talk about a lot in my class is not my framework, but it's a framework that um, may be familiar to many of us. It's the Ikigai diagram of four circles in a Venn diagram consisting of what you're good at, what you're passionate about, what the world will pay for and what the world needs. 
And I'm still trying to navigate my way to the center of those four circles. And I'm on a mission to help others do the same. One of the things I want to just comment on real quick, just going back to one of your prior comments is you mentioned that our parents are well-meaning and those with privilege are also well-meaning. Well, yeah, I think that's a really important place to start, which is assuming positive intent mm. and knowing that that positive intent is there. One thing that I've noticed is, you know, we talked about cultural differences and maybe how workplaces and societies work outside of the US. One aspect that I think is under discussed is class. Mm -hmm. If I think about what it takes to succeed in a white collar workplace environment, you know, it's, it's hard to be seen, to be heard, to be known because you're working in teams. Maybe you're working remotely. You are working on a broader project that might span several months or even several years. It's hard to quantify your output on a daily basis. It's very different from how my mom's workplace was structured. She was a sewing machine operator. So it's pretty darn clear whether you're a good sewing machine operator or not. You just have to observe how quickly she sews and whether those zippers are sewn on correctly. So you just have to walk up and down, you know, the, 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 the lineups of sewing machines to see who's doing a good job. And if I think back to how my mom could have navigated the workplace, well, if you saw her up from her seat, networking, quote unquote, having water cooler chats. I mean, that's a recipe for getting fired, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, if you took the put your head down, do the hard work and let the hard work speak for itself, and you imported that mindset into a white collar work environment, people are going to start wondering, hey, is it that you don't want to get along with us? Is it that you're not interested in this work? Is it that you're shy? Is it that you're disinterested? So people's minds start wandering in an unfair way when really it's a matter of of class and expectations across different types of work environments. So anyways, I'll, I'll toss it back to you, but you just really got me thinking here. No, I, there's, and I will say, um, we're, we're not going to be able to touch on everything today. Right. And I think there's, um, certain element of class and opportunity and, um, so socioeconomic, yes. And, and none of it is sort of independent, right? Like, and I think the history of this country, how we came here, when your families came here under what circumstance, it, it all sort of makes it different. And I don't want to lament like it's harder for us, but I do think that it is different for us. And I think one of the first things that um, as you listen to Gorak and, and the wise advice that I wish I had at different points in my life is trying to figure out what ladder you want to climb and, mm. and trying to get to that point as quick as you can. Because the other unspoken thing about us is how we measure success and how we define success and what even opportunities exist for us. And so here, Gorik and I are sitting, you know, um, again, having gone down this post-MBA route and then trying to, or, or deciding to pivot away from it. And there's been many, many scary moments of, holy crap, what are we doing? Um, <laughs> All the nobody, time, every day. Yeah, there's, 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 no, there's no paycheck, there's no PTO. We're, we're simply trying to figure things out. And, um, and then we're still doing that. Um, so we're entrepreneurs. The way that our parents' generation defined entrepreneurship was almost out of necessity because many of them could not even apply or feel like they could exist in the traditional corporate sense or in the academic sense. And so when we talk to our parents, and I, and I do think that I, my parents were, uh, you know, it, they took a lot, little bit longer time trying to figure out, one, what the hell I did for a living, and more importantly, why I chose to do what I did. Because from their perspective, it's you have this gift of having the ability to exist in this system that I couldn't. So why aren't you? You went to schools that I didn't get to go to. You have this access and you had a job. Why did you walk away from it? And, and so, you know, the, the critical part is trying to figure out what that success means for you. And, and then I know that perhaps it is both an easier time to do so because the climate of the world is more encouraging of um, independence and going down your own path. But because we live in a socially connected world digitally, it is often more difficult to make your own decisions because of all the different uh, inputs that we get and the opinions of other people that we get about what you should be doing. And, and so let's let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, you've joked many times just even in this brief conversation about the, the, the scary feelings of having to figure things out. Uh, our classmates from business school and even college 
are not all on this path. And sometimes it is difficult to have the same conversations about why we do what we do, but and why we continue to go down this path. And even to the point of like, what are you trying to prove? You could have just stayed where you were and collected a pretty decent paycheck for your family. Um, are there other unspoken rules to, to pointedly put point back to your book about going down this path that you've learned? And let's remind people, uh, Gork and I speak professionally, and we've had to navigate this space in a pandemic where we've spent a lot of time talking on Zoom. We've spent a lot of time, uh, quote unquote, being on campus or in offices with our friends and clients, um, but never physically being there. Um, what are some of the things that you've learned uh, that you maybe you wish you had known and and share with some of the uh, unspoken rules about being a, a media entrepreneur? <laughs> sure thing. Well, th this didn't end up making it into the book, but it's one of the phrases that I'm most known for as a career advisor at Harvard. And it's my phrase, prestige is locally defined. And what I mean is that what you aspire to and which career paths and jobs and callings are most desirable will be a function of who you hang around. So if you on the Harvard campus were among the business people, well, everyone wants to go into finance and consulting. If you're among the pre-med group, you'd want to get into the best medical school and get the best research positions on campus and so on. You're among the law school crowd. You all want to get into XYZ uh, law school. And to your point, Jerry, you talked about figuring out which ladder you want to climb. And in a society enabled by social media and us having the world at our fingertips, what's well, hard to not compare. And it's hard to not chase after external validation. Where I'm thinking back to when I was on a college campus as a student, that is, when I got some of these jobs, I mean, it was hard for me to not walk into the dining hall with my chin just a little bit more highly tilted. Because I was thinking, yeah, hey, I made it. Um, and it wasn't until I got into these jobs that I realized, hey, actually, the, the smuggery <laughs> that I faced in getting these positions, I mean, that was a fleeting feeling. And it was a feeling that I wanted because, well, my six closest friends all considered this path to be the only path worth doing in life. And I think business schools are guilty of this culture as well, right? Long term, the only person that you really have to impress and to satisfy is yourself. Um, and so I think that's something that I wish someone had told me sooner. Mm. I'm doing a double take here because I'm also wondering if I was in the position to listen. Yep. Um, it's hard to sell preventative medicine. So uh, maybe it's a matter of our school systems, our societies giving us more safe ways to not fail, but at least struggle and figure things out on our own so that the advice of those coming before us will be just a little bit less theoretical. <laughs> I think that would have been really helpful for me personally. I often wonder because the things that I'm doing now as you don't necessarily require the degrees or the employers that we have on our resumes. And, and mm. I think sometimes we think about, hey, but what if I got started five years before and, and you know, had a, a different trajectory? And the answer is everything has happened for a specific reason for us to have had the experiences and the learnings to do what we're doing now. And like you said, what if somebody has told us these unspoken rules when we were 18 or 25 or whatever? And I bet you somebody probably did and in their own way. And maybe we weren't ready to receive it. Maybe we were so gung-ho on trying to go down this path that would sort of validate the decisions that we had made, right? And because I think especially in business school, like I went in with the specific goal of becoming a consultant. And so everything else was like, why, why would I not pursue that? especially given the you know enormous amount of financial risk that I took. And so I almost felt like I had to come out as that and then decide for three years down the road if I was going to do something else. And these things, again, are not conversations that are often had in our homes or in our communities or even with our friends. And the people that we put on pedestals and point to and saying, man, that's a successful, that's a definition of a successful, you know, uh, Asian American person, or even just a leader in general, doesn't really give us the, the the capacity or the space or the grace to have these conversations about 
defining what success means. And I, I do think that it is correlated that as you um, age up a little bit and have more life experiences and realize that maybe the, the things that you thought would grant you um, satisfaction or joy are not all that's made out to be, that mm. you you pivot a little bit later and saying like, I am so much more happy doing what I'm doing and in control of whatever um, is is really, really fantastic. And I, I will say, you know, I had such a humbling moment in the months leading up to graduate school. And, and it came from such a very, very unexpected place. And, and it just humbled me. And so we've been going to the same person uh, here in LA before we moved to Michigan for grad school, um, our hairdresser. And, and he was a, a, a newer immigrant, just really good at his craft, but like just not really familiar with both the American system of things or even just the academic system in general. And so I said, hey, you know, um, you know, my wife and I are moving to Michigan. So like, you know, this is going to be our, you know, final time with you. We'll be back in a couple of years. We we're having this conversation. And he goes, oh, why are you going out there? And I goes, oh, I'm going to business school. And he goes, oh, that's really great. You're going to business school. What kind of business are you learning to start when you go to a school like that? Mm. And in that moment, I was just so almost I don't want to say embarrassed, but just this feeling of I am so freaking privileged to be able to take this risk and to do the things that I want to do. And here's this person who thinks that business school is actually going to learn how to start a specific business. And the things that we just take for granted um, is so humbling. And thinking about, again, when you talked about the localization of prestige and what it means to other people. Um, we often get bogged down in what it means to our immediate peers. Um, like, you know, just let's even take the, the two probably is maybe not because um, tech is more popular, like consulting and banking. We use those terms to mean very specific type of consulting and very specific type of <laughs> right. banking jobs. 100%. But if you sit at a branch at a retail location and open accounts for people, you too are a banker, Right. If you help somebody with anything in life by giving them advice and coaching, you are technically a consultant of sorts. But right. when we in our privileged bubble use the singular titles of banker and consultant, we mean specifically investment bank and that and consultant management and strategy consultant. Not only that, at a very limited list of companies that we quote unquote deem worthy of using such titles with and a lot of that really comes down to learning it when you're outside of the system and learn and realizing that, man, the 99.9% .9 of the world who don't get to go to business school, um, <laughs> it, it's very humbling. And, and I think it's, 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 I'm grateful for the experiences, but I am also, um, you know, uh, mindful of the fact that many of the people that listen to us or that will come to us maybe will not have those opportunities. And so how do we then use all that we've learned to make sure that, our, our kids and our the next generation of leaders make sure that they have these life lessons without perhaps going down the same path. And again, it's been such a wonderful path for, for me to be on, especially in the light of the last couple of years, particularly in our community where we've learned and the world at large, at least the country at large, has learned that life as an Asian American person, um, whether it is in corporate America or in higher education or just generally, isn't maybe all as modern minority myth esque or as as rosy as people had once thought, and that as we dig and as we have conversations about well, what does that mean if you're not a monolith? What are some of the differences in within the Asian American community that we have not talked about openly? And so we end up learning things that are very topics like very familiar to you and me about the income disparities, the disparities in higher education and even access to healthcare and in-language services. How much of the work that you have decided to do, or at least have learned, with whom your message resonates, has given you maybe an insight or more encouragement specific to helping people within our community with your unspoken rules? I think the most powerful, unintended consequence of your work and mine and so many others is the work of normalizing different paths. And, and so here we are talking about, you know, the solopreneur path versus the W2 path in the US. Well, I think there's normalization to be made on both sides. So one of the things that I experimented with with my students at UC Berkeley 
towards the end of the semester was I showed them a bunch of YouTube videos uh, of maybe you've seen this as well. The, the, the guys who, and regrettably, I think a lot of them are guys in, in this case, I haven't seen many women doing this, but they would stick an iPhone in front of someone with a fancy car or who owns a fancy house. And they would say, Hey, nice car. What do you do for a living? Ah. <laughs> and they would then start sharing really just the most eclectic collection of jobs like oh i run a trekking business oh i sell pet food and i showed this to my students because i wanted to normalize different career paths that success can be defined in so many different ways and i don't want to claim even for a moment that financial success is the only definition of success and that's the right definition of success but if we just look at the financial piece for a moment um well, if you want to make money, quote unquote, there are a lot of ways to do so beyond the paths that you and your six closest friends may deem to be the only things worth doing in life. So I wanted to normalize non-traditional career paths for my students. But at the same time, given that students both want these jobs and uh get villainized for getting these jobs. What I wanted to also do for the first gen low income college students is to normalize the goal of making money. Mm. I mean, let, let's be real. If you're going into higher education, accumulating student debt, having family members to support, being there to not, you know, if you're there, not just for the sake of intellectual stimulation, but build yourself a better life. Like, let's be real. Like we should not be villainizing people for pursuing certain stable and high paying careers, especially if this is why they're in the halls of Harvard in the first place. Um, and so I think there's normalization to be done. And, and so much of this is about showing people that, Hey, you might feel like you're alone, but you're really not. And helping folks be at peace with their decisions and feel like they're making decisions with agency. I think that's uh, a, a powerful and underappreciated unintended consequence, I think, of our work. Yeah, I, I think it's you're 100% right. And I think perhaps our collectively, our, our parents' generation, again, with, with the best intent and with limited information, narrowly defined for us what success would mean. And if money is the goal, which obviously has a lot of other benefits of freedom and choice and, you know, opportunity, maybe those weren't aligned, right? I, I often, you know, think about sort of even growing up with the people we had in our lives, whether they be, you know, my parents, friends, or my friends, parents, or, you know, church folks or whatnot, the people who had the most freedom of choice and of time were not employees. They were people who, you know, were in business for themselves or were doing something differently and creative. And, and I, and I think because Perhaps in our own cultures back home, um, I, I can't speak for all the other Asian cultures, but prestige and respect and sort of social nobility tied to your job is very important in the Korean culture that perhaps that was put at a higher level of desirability than money itself and somehow understood that if that happens, then money would follow. And I think, you know, there was a little bit of obsession or sort of importance of how you make Money is equally important from a prestige factor than money itself, because there's, there's so much, it's deep, right? The way that people think about even class and, you know, all these things. And look, if you want to go to Harvard and go to, you know, BCG as Gorick did and, and make your money, do that, please. Because we need people in those institutions to also have these conversations. And we need those people in those situations, in these positions of being a partner or an executive to also normalize us being in those rooms. And to then inspire the next generation of people coming up. I at the that. same time, that shouldn't be your only goal, right? Like, and then when you have that money, do something to help other people. <laughs> you know, like it's 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 got to be both. I think. Um, and again, we're just two guys that decided to take our own path away from that life to build something different. And who's to say that we won't go back to it? I don't know. Uh, but for this. For, for this chapter in our lives, whether you're writing books and giving speeches and I have a podcast and we're building other stuff, um, it makes sense for us now. Um, and, and we hope to 
So the answer is you figure out what makes sense for you. And people like Gorik will be there to give you his advice and his perspectives. And you can take all of it and you can take none of it. And, and that's the wonderful thing about advice. But it's things that I think from his perspective of having spoken to thousands of people, perhaps in your situation, that these are universal truths in a way, or at least things that can give you pause and saying, huh, I never really thought about the world in that particular lens. There's so much uh, good stuff in what you just said, Jerry. Um, I think so much of this ultimately has to do with being at peace with one's decisions, knowing why we're doing what we're doing. Um, I'm thinking back to a conversation I had with a dear friend who I also interviewed for The Unspoken Rules. And he told me about the three phases of his life so far. The first phase consisted of him living up to his parents' expectations. The second phase consisted of him living up to society's expectations. And the third phase, where he is hopefully right now, consists of him living up to his own expectations. And this was powerful because as I thought back to the journey that I followed through my friend, well, the first phase consisted of him trying to get good grades, pursuing a PhD in theoretical math, even though that wasn't exactly what he wanted to do. He then jumped over to phase two when he realized, hey, actually, I don't know that I want to be an academic. I don't know that I want to be staring at Greek letters, not even numbers all day. Um, I'm going to go get ABC prestigious job. And he burned himself out. And he didn't find any satisfaction in what he was doing. And then finally, he realized, actually, there were a couple of aspects of his life that he had neglected. He had neglected his own health to start. He had neglected his relationships and his community. And so the last time I spoke to him was when he was transitioning to success as defined by himself. And he was just on the path of rebuilding his life, starting with doing a morning stroll, walking his dog, spending more time with family and friends. And also for him, transitioning from... Um, a, an intense corporate job over to actually real estate investing. I'm not mm. saying that real estate investing should be your definition of success too. I know next to nothing about this. But for him, after a ton of self-discovery and really toiling over why he was doing what he was doing, he realized, actually, I'm ready for phase three. And the, I think the sooner we collectively can find ourselves in phase three, I think the more satisfaction we'll have, the more energy we'll have, in the morning, the more reasons we have for waking up in the morning, ready to take on the world. That's beautiful. I, I never, I mean, I never actually heard it put it in those three very simply defined things. And I, again, it just goes back to sort of, what do you, what do you want to do? Right? Because <laughs> your parents have told you what that means. And, and, and you can decide for yourself what your peers, your professors, your counselors, or even society at large has told you what they expect of you. And for some, for some very few lucky people, all those three things magically align. And so if that's you, great. Uh, but I will say that many of the, you know, my, me and, and many of my friends, they don't. Maybe you get two out of the three. And for some, for many, you get one. And so how do you get to that point? And again, I, I want to caveat like the things that we talk about and the things that we, the decisions that uh, Gorg and I have been able to make in, in venturing off comes with a tremendous amount of privilege that we understand and that we admit to and that not everybody has the ability to take a risk on betting on yourself because again in, in many of our families it's complex who we have to take care of and, and what sort of other expectations there are and so we're, we're also trying not to shame people who continue, who have to exist in certain systems until they can but if you are able to and if you are um, in a position where you want to consider that you know there's so much information out there and there's now more than ever um, I don't think where we're, we want to be or where we need to be, but there are so many examples of people who look like you, people who have grown up in similar situations as you, uh, went to the same schools, and can share with you their story of how they got to where they got to. The whole point of this podcast is sort of the, you know, the our long form version and our Asian American version of the guy who runs up to people in cars and saying, "What do you do for a living?" You know, because I'm asking people, how did you define your own Asian American dream? And 
that answer is infinite because there are infinite computations of how we can define what success means to all of us. So much to comment on there, Jerry. My, I'll, I'll focus on just one, which is if I can provide... Okay, I lied. I'll give you two. <laughs> but if I could just comment with two pieces of advice, just tidbits that I wish someone had told me sooner. The, the first is find a role model and then deconstruct how they got to where they are today. Hmm. This is actually also an exercise that I, I did with my students over at UC Berkeley this semester. I had them identify a role model. So some people said Theodore Roosevelt, others said Sal Khan, others said Sheryl Sandberg, what have you. Others said my neighbor. I told them to figure out what they did step-by-step. Step. Go onto their Wikipedia profile, listen to their podcasts, go on their LinkedIn profile if you're on LinkedIn, open up each of the different sections, and then scroll through their bio from the bottom up. Where did they go to school? Mm. What did they study? What internships did they have? What first job did they have? Second job, third job? How long did they stay? What roles did they hold? Did they do anything simultaneously? At what point did it seem like they jumped from one job to another? And start making this a habit of yours. And pretty soon after just even looking at three, four, five bios, you're going to get a sense of what are the patterns that are inherent in this career path. Mm. And regardless of whether you're looking to strike out on your own, uh, build a more scalable business, or climb the corporate ladder or work in a larger organization, there are going to be patterns. Uh, one I'll, I'll, I'll share with you is I was interviewing someone who uh, was a policy advisor over at the White House. And he said, if you want to be a subject matter expert, someone that people call upon, there's just one thing you can do that's very simple. Stay longer than the next person. <laughs> I.e., there's so much turnover in politics that if you just stay for like two administrations, you're going to be an expert. You're going to be the person who's been around for a while. <laughs> and uh, this person mapped out for me the paths of people who are pretty young or pretty early in their careers or who haven't spent that much time um, in a particular field, in this case, politics, federal politics. And they gained a lot of influence simply by toughing it out. I'm not saying stay in a toxic environment. I'm not saying go against what is best for your mental and physical well-being. But this was one of the patterns that this person had identified. I'll give you another example where in many organizations, there is the tactic that you can apply, I call them hidden maneuvers, the hidden maneuver of clinging on to a rising star. So if there's someone who is on the fast lane to making it up to the top, maybe they're CEO apparent, maybe they're the heir apparent of this organization. Well, if you're working with them on a, on a regular basis and building trust with this individual, as they get promoted, you will get promoted. So a lot of a lot more of these, and I'm starting to think about what this might look like as maybe a second book or something. But uh, they're patterns. Identify those patterns and remember those patterns. And the the second thing here is de-risk your next career move. Also coming from the course I'm teaching, there's a lot of pressure that we put on ourselves to just quit everything, jump off, and do it full time, and the media glorifies the story of this heroic entrepreneur. When we unpack, and I also do this as an exercise with my students, is as we unpack the moves that people made quietly, we start realizing that many people actually took a three-step process to building their careers. Step one is they find a main hustle. So whether if you're a student, your main hustle is as a student, if you're in the corporate world, it's your full-time job. Step two is to find a side hustle. So if you're looking to strike out on your own, maybe you're podcasting on the side, maybe you're blogging on the side, maybe you create an Etsy store, create a Shopify website, whatever. If you're in the corporate world, it might be joining an employee resource group. It might be taking on an additional project. It might be contributing to some sort of initiative that has executive sponsorship. So I'm defining side hustles very broadly, as broadly as, as one can. And then the third step is to 
convert your side hustle into your main hustle. I've seen many people who took on additional projects at work with someone in a different office. And then through those relationships and that skill building and that learning, ended up turning that into a position that didn't even exist before in this organization. Or if I think about John Legend, John Legend was as well a former management consultant. He was singing on nights and weekends, and he turned his side hustle into his main hustle, and the rest is history. So um, pattern recognition and de-risk your next move. John Legend is the go-to story of what what you can do what you too can do after consulting if, if it doesn't work out. <laughs> um, a lot of a lot of other examples like that oh, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, of of people who it, it seems like they just made this heroic jump, but really they sure they they were deliberate about it. Yeah, and and I think you know oftentimes, especially in in, in the tech world, and I know many of our friends and uh, peers want to be somebody in that tech world. I mean, we hear often these stories about, you know, this uh, whiz person that dropped out of college to do something. And and I, I would challenge, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm great. I'm grateful that some of these companies were built. But like behind that story is perhaps a different story of wealth and connections and, and you know, parents and family who could support that. And at the end of the day, you know, dropping out of co- college, quote unquote, dropout, coming out of Harvard or Stanford with privilege and access to build something and never really suffer the ramifications of a traditional college dropout or things that are sometimes not told with that story because it's not as sexy and it doesn't sell as many clicks. And so, I mean, there's a context to everything too, right? So like, that, that's why I think it's really important to understand, as, as Gorik said, like, figure out de-risking, right? Because having, um, not having to depend on your income for survival is a method of de-risking. And yes, that's privilege, but some people have figured that out. And so maybe it is, making sure that your side hustle money can eclipse your full-time income before you make that jump, right? And to try to figure out how other people did it, right? And and maybe you can't like reverse engineer, you know, being born into family wealth. We can't help that. But there are other <laughs> things that you can do, right? And I think now as we sort of transition away from all the lessons that we learned in uh, pandemic land and in virtual world, as we transition back into what that means going forward, there's so much opportunity. Uh, so much opportunity to create your own content, to find your own audience, to do things in your own silos, because you do not have to create a great life or a great business or even have a great career for yourself. Um, again, I think prestige is localized, but so is success. And so, you know, you do not need to be a household name to be the world's next great, you know, author, speaker, content creator. Um, you can make a great income for yourself and to find happiness sort of in in the grand scheme of things, still an anonymity, which might be kind of a cool thing. Um, and, and so as we wrap here, Gorek, you know, we, we wrap the show in, in the same way every time. Dear Asian Americans is a love letter to us from us and poetically so in the way that you've shared your unspoken rules with the community. I started this project, now that's turned into a business, to share with each other and to ourselves what we can share that we didn't get to learn. And maybe that's a younger version of Gorik somewhere, or maybe it's a, you know, the next generation of young leaders. And so um, Gorik Eng, uh, help us close out the show and complete the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, the world needs your ideas. The world needs your talents. The world needs your voice. We desperately need your help. Come help us. <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, short and sweet. And it is to start something, to write that post, um, apply for that job, sign up for that Etsy store, whatever it is, take action because that's, I think, one of the things that is holding us back. And I think at least when I grew up, we didn't see a lot of people that look like us doing the things that we want to do. And that is no longer true. And it's just a matter of, do you see yourself doing that? And so much more. Uh, I encourage everybody listening to us to follow Gorik on all the socials, especially on LinkedIn, where he shares so many gems. Uh, If you are a company or a school looking for speakers, for all the great content and all the great insights and help and share um, about his life and how it can help your students and your staff figure out the next best steps for them, engage with him and his team about bringing him in, and then go check out his book, The Unspoken Rules. 
Um, if you're seeing this on video, that's what it looks like. And you got some some notable, notable uh, high fives and recommendations and vouchers for this book. That is so cool. And and I will say, I think, you know, when I when you first came into uh, my world, Gorik, was when our mutual friend and HBS professor, Laurel Hong, had posted about the book and how she was so excited. And my instant thing was, holy crap, there's another Asian American man who is writing books, sharing stories, and putting himself out there to help kids that look like us. And we don't really see a whole lot of that. And while I am encouraged by more Asian American authors, you know, writing more books, um, especially in the advice world, in the nonfiction world, and in the business lens, we still don't see enough. And so shout outs to you and kudos to you for taking that leap and proving that professor wrong and dropping a 400 page manuscript of, Hey, I did this on his desk and, and for all the wonderful work that you have done and will continue to do in the lives that you will continue to change and really, really blessed to call you a friend and a colleague and uh, somebody who has been so helpful in my career and, and in my growth, uh, both, you know, in front in the public and, and much more so in, uh, in conversations that we had. So thanks so much. Hey, right back at you, Jerry. Thank you for being just the best friend, fellow traveler inspiration to me ever. <laughs> and thanks for representing our community so well. You're, you're lifting up so many of us and you're, you're lifting as you're climbing and you're doing an amazing job at it. So keep it up. Ah, thank you. And one of these days we will hang out in person. And so um, I would love we'll, that. We will make that happen in 2023. Thanks, Gorg. Amazing. Take care. Take care, Jerry. Big thanks to Gorg for making time to share his wisdom, his experiences, and his story with us here on The Asian Americans. The Unspoken Rules is the name of his book. Gorick.com is where you can find all the ways to learn more from him, to connect with him on the internet, and also to bring him in to your organization, your school, or the conference that you were planning to share the unspoken rules of life, career, and business with your audiences and even with the people that you deeply care about. DearAsianAmericans.com is where you can go to learn more about our show and to listen to past episodes. At Dear Asian Americans on Instagram, whereas you can find us on the internet. JerryOne.com is where you can go to learn more about my work outside of this podcast. And you can find me on LinkedIn. Just search Jerry Wan, W-O-N. And I look forward to connecting with you there. If you have any thoughts or questions about the show and want to write to us, you can do that at Jerry at JustLikeMedia.com. That is Jerry at JustLikeMedia.com. Producer Pat, where can people find you? People can find me on Instagram at Patrick and the world. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Patrick Armstrong, or you can find a whole bunch of stuff that I do uh, on my website, patrickintheworld.me. Dot me. Uh, this week's really interesting for us. Uh, Patrick is joining me in LA. We are launching a sister business called Always Be Creating, which is an Asian content creator network and events platform. And we are having our unofficial Just Like Media holiday company party. Uh, if we can call it that, by attending the unforgettable gala together as a team. And so we are so excited to be able to share uh, our year together with you all. Next week also marks the beginning of a new series that we are doing with a new partner. And so um, as you heard, as we kicked off the show, this episode was sponsored by our wonderful friends at the Department of Health and Human Services and McDonald's. And so big, big thanks to them for all the support that they have shared with us on the show. And as we continue to deal with challenging health conditions and many things that we're uh, dealing with, I wish you nothing but health, happiness, and safety in 2022 and beyond. Signing off for Patrick Armstrong, our producer, I am Jerry Wan, your host of The Ears Americans, and we will see you next time. <laughs>